Some glorious words, amen? Good words, life-giving words, and that's indeed what time it is in our service right now. It's time for uh, God's Word to speak to us, and so, so glad you're here today with us to worship. Those of you that are with us online, we're happy to be with you this morning in that way as well. Let's participate together in our memory verse for the month of January. It's from the book of 1 Corinthians, where we've been studying. It's in chapter 13. Let's say it together. For now we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. Now I know in part, then I shall know fully, even as I have been fully known. 1 Corinthians 13, 12. The word of the Lord. I'm excited to be memorizing scripture together as a congregation. It's a wonderful way to practice the habits of hiding God's word in our heart. And when we do that, one of the reasons that David said that we were to do that is so that we would keep from sinning uh, against the Lord. And so God's word certainly helps us uh, in that endeavor. Well, I have to tell you uh, that in our home, food goes really, really quickly. We have a lot of hungry mouths to feed. Many of you know there are seven children in our home. There are nine of us. And sometimes on Saturday mornings, uh, it is our habit, uh, one of my habits, and sometimes the boys help. Uh, sometimes Bailey helps as well. We are going to get up and make eggs for everybody. So... Uh, in our cabinet, there are two saucepans that are appropriate for making eggs. One of those saucepans is appropriate for early mornings when I want to make eggs for just myself. It's effective and it's appropriate for that. Another one of those saucepans is massive. <laughs> and it's very, very effective for making eggs for nine people. Now, in your minds... Can anyone guess the starting number of eggs in the Lenhart family home for scrambled eggs that would feed everyone on a Saturday morning? Nine hungry mouths. I can tell you it's over. Yeah, it's, it's over. We're, we're going over 20. We're going over 20 eggs. Yeah, uh, not quite three dozen, but close between 22, uh, 24, somewhere in that number. It is quite a bit. Um, one of the things we learned when we became a large family is that you no longer can buy the eggs in the cartons at the grocery store uh, because you go back to the grocery store every other day to get more eggs if you do it that way. Uh, so we buy these uh, massive things that have just eggs layered on top of eggs and, and put in our fridge and we start from there. So we have saucepans and we have scales in our home for uh, one for food and one uh, for bodies, sometimes I feel like if we're cooking for the family, I need to put the body scale up on the countertop and weigh the food on top of the body scale. But there are some tools uh, in our kitchens and in our homes that have limited potential. So when I get that small saucepan out in the morning, the potential for what can be held in that small saucepan to feed, uh, it's, it's, it's pretty limited. But when I get that gigantic, that big saucepan out in the house, the potential for what can be held and who can be fed in that saucepan grows into a much greater proportion. And as it turns out, there are some gifts that God has given his church 
that are more appropriate and more effective in our public gatherings. And there are other gifts that are more efficient and more useful in our more intimate and private settings. And so we are turning again into Paul's letter today. We're in chapter 14. And the portion that we are studying today, uh, we are going to be reminded in this portion uh, that Paul is addressing the body as they gather together corporately. That's the context for where Paul is writing in this portion of his letter. When the whole congregation comes together for public worship, which gifts are most effective for the building up of the body? And we also need to take into consideration the reality that when we gather, we are not, friends, only made up of fellow believers. More often than not, even today, whether here in the building or online, there are those who are with us in our community who have not yet believed. And as we study 1 Corinthians this morning, a detail of a curious nature begins to emerge. It appears that Paul's desire is for the gathered faith community to consider the needs of those who have not yet believed, but may be in our corporate worship spaces. The spiritual gifts then, while they are given to believers, can be powerfully used of God to change and to influence the lives of those who have not yet believed. But... How is God able to work through the gift that is most effective, which Paul identifies as prophecy? How is God able to work through that gift in public environments to inspire and motivate faith, to cultivate postures and habits of worship, and to invigorate fresh declarations of truth? To answer that question, we'll turn to our text today. It's in 1 Corinthians chapter 14. Verses 13 through 25 today. And before we read, let's ask the Lord uh, to guide our time. Father, thank you for your word. We come together this morning as a body of Christ, uh, excited to study and to learn and to read and to grow. We know that even now, Lord, your spirit is at work among us. He is moving and uh, ready to apply to each and every one of us what your truth has in store for us today. And so we open this text, Lord, with hearts and minds that are willing to learn, willing to grow, willing to apply and use what you teach us through the reading and the hearing and the proclamation of your word this morning. We thank you in advance for how you're going to work, and we give you the glory for what you accomplish in our midst today. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. 1 Corinthians chapter 14, let's start in verse 13 today. This is Paul writing to the people of Corinth. Therefore, one who speaks in a tongue should pray that he may interpret. For if I pray in a tongue, my spirit prays, but my mind is unfruitful. What am I to do? I will pray with my spirit, but I will pray with my mind also. I will sing praise with my spirit, but I will sing with my mind also. Otherwise, if you give thanks with your spirit, how can anyone in the position of an outsider say amen to your thanksgiving when he does not know what you are saying? For you may be giving thanks well enough, but the other person is not being built up. I thank God that I speak in tongues more than all of you. 
Nevertheless, in church, I would rather speak five words with my mind in order to instruct others than 10,000 words in a tongue. Brothers, do not be children in your thinking. Be infants in evil, but in your thinking, be mature. In the law, it is written by people of strange tongues and by the lips of foreigners, I will speak to this people. And even then they will not listen to me, says the Lord. Thus, tongues are a sign not for believers, but for unbelievers. While prophecy is a sign not for unbelievers, but for believers. If therefore the whole church comes together and all speak in tongues and outsiders or unbelievers enter, will they not say that you are out of your minds? But if all prophesy and an unbeliever or outsider enters, he is convicted by all. He's called to account by all. The secrets of his heart are disclosed. And so falling on his face, he will worship God and declare that God is really among you. So from the beginning of his portion of his letter this morning, we see that there is a gift that's been given with limited potential. In verse 13, Paul is saying that because tongues is limited in its scope and effect in the public gatherings, that the one who employs the gift should pray that they would also be able to interpret what they are saying. And now Paul suggests that there are three different ways that this gift of tongues was employed in the church. And uh, each of them were effective and efficient more for self-building and private worship environments. And these are speaking in verse 13, praying in verse 14, and singing in verse 15. In verse 15 to 17, there's a recognition that the gifts engage these different dimensions of our humanity. Paul talks about both the mind and the spirit being engaged by the gifts. Look at what he says in verse 15. What am I to do? I will pray with my what? What does he say? Spirit. But I will also pray with what? My mind. I will sing praise with my spirit. But I will also sing praise with my mind. Spirit and mind. Paul wants to, us to see the exercise of the gifts producing not just fruit in the spirit of the individuals in the church, but also producing fruit in the minds of the gathered church. But he does not limit the focus of the gifts just towards the edification of believers. Rather, Paul's introduced something that is fresh and new, perhaps, for us to consider. Namely, we are to consider the spirit and the mind of the one who has not yet believed, but is present with us in our gatherings. The word outsider that Paul uses in the text here, it literally means one who is curious or questioning. The word that we use in our culture today is the word seeker. We hear that word in our communities today. People that are asking questions, wanting to find out more about the faith or seeking to learn more about God, but they have not yet believed. 
And this could be a person who's brand new to the faith, yet not understanding their own gifting or giftedness. It could be a person who is right on the cusp of believing. It could be a person who is looking for answers regarding how they might exist in the world they find themselves inhabiting. So which gifts are most effective and efficient for engaging the mind of the one who is curious? And it seems that for Paul, singing or praying or speaking in another language, an unknown language, perhaps to most of the people who are gathered, that might not be the most effective way to engage an outsider's mind in the gathered assembly. Look at what he says in verse 16. If you give thanks with your spirit, how can anyone in the position of an outsider say amen? He does not know what you are saying. Building up the other person, both, the, both one another who are here, who are gathered, who are believers, and the outsider or the not yet believing should be taken into consideration when we gather in sacred community. Friends, we cannot just focus our energies, our efforts, and our attentions on those who have already believed. We have to be more considerate than that. For Paul, the gift of tongues in public gatherings seems to be an obstacle towards this consideration. Now, notice that he does not bemoan the use of tongues in their proper setting. Rather, in verse 18, he talks about the gift uh, as he uses it more than anyone else. However, the deployment of tongues in the public gathering of the church does not always accomplish the intended goal for our gatherings, which is what we explored last week. The intended goal of our gatherings is to glorify God by edifying one another and building one another up in love. Friends, that's why we get together on Sunday morning, to glorify God by building one another up in love. God's given his people gifts. Gifts that are effective towards this end when employed in our public gatherings. And when we do this, these gifts are engaging both the mind and the spirit. The public proclamation of God's truth in the gift of prophecy is one of the most effective ways for the people of God to build one another up in love. If if we want to ask the question today, how can we effectively encourage one another and truly build one another up in love? What's a way that we can do that? The answer Paul's providing for us here in the text is the gift of prophecy, the proclamation of truth with the intent to influence thought, attitude, or behavior. When the gift of prophecy is properly used, we have effectively given the listener priority above the speaker. That's important, friends. The listener in the proclamation of truth has priority above the speaker. It's not about what the speaker is saying, but it's more about what the listener needs to hear. And friends, the reality is this. As we sit in this room and look around, we're all very different. As, as those who were with us online today sit at home, they could look around and know in their own families, they are very, very different. And we do truly never know how the Spirit is working through the public proclamation of God's Word. What we know is this, 
God says my word will not return what? Is that true? Yes. So what we know is we know that when God's word is proclaimed, when the truth of his word is proclaimed, that he is working, that he is at work. But we don't always know or see or understand how. So Paul kind of wraps this thought up in verse 19 when he says this. In church, I would rather speak five words with my mind in order to instruct others than 10,000 words in a tongue. And so again, throughout the beginning of this portion of his teaching, Paul's leaning into this mysterious quality that's a part of the gift of tongues, something that we really can't grab hold of or understand in the church today as we don't uh, exercise or use that gift in the church uh, where it's established throughout the world today, uh, as maybe perhaps it is used in places where the church is not yet established. It's hard for us to understand what was fully wrapped up in this terminology of tongues. But we know that with the proclamation of God's truth, that all who are in attendance can hear. The Spirit is working. God is at work. His word will not return void. And he's applying to each and every person what they need. And so prophecy then is a gift that as we look at it as it's employed in the church today, it's a gift that's given with seemingly unlimited potential. And part of the Corinthian church's growth and maturity process was learning which gifts were most effective in the right environment. This is what Paul's exploring in verse 20. Take a look at what he says. Sisters and brothers, do not be children in your thinking. Be infants in evil, but in your thinking be mature. Now, when my children were young, we would go to birthday parties and we would go to Christmas uh, gatherings with families. And there were all kinds of gifts that people would have for them. Let's, let's say a birthday party. And that gift would be wrapped up so beautifully with the most magnificent wrapping paper and a bow. And it would be in a box and a family member would give this child of mine this gift with the excitement of waiting to see how they would respond when they would open the gift and see what was inside the box. But when our children are very, very young, what do they care more about? The box. <laughs> and the wrapping paper sometimes. Sometimes they never get to what's inside to give you the satisfaction of how excited they would be. A lot of times I remember uh, my child would open up the gift and see that bright colorful picture on the box and they would just think, oh, that's the toy, this is wonderful. Just thinking that the picture was it. That was what the, they were going to play with and enjoy looking at, but not realizing, no, there is something much more useful inside. Open the box and see what's in there. Tongues in the congregation, in Paul's day, was like the bright box or the colorful wrapping paper. It was attractive to the Christian community in Paul's day. It was curiosity stroking to those who were outside of the church looking in. What 
is going on? How are these people able to speak in these languages if they've never formally learned? What is happening? But it was not always useful for public edification and public engagement in the corporate congregation. Mature, well-rounded, whole or complete thinking was developed as the church was gathered in community to hear the public proclamation of truth in a language that everyone could understand and interpret together. The gift of tongues does serve a purpose for the outsider or for the one who has not yet believed, but it is not the same purpose that it serves for the believer. For the individual believer in a private and intimate setting, the gift of tongues was good for building up the individual spirit. Perhaps even good when employed in small and more intimate assemblies or gatherings of believers. But for the outsider or the not yet believer, the gift of tongues was actually seen, heard, or received as a form of judgment. And this is what Paul's going to lean in here. He is going to quote directly from the book of Isaiah, Isaiah chapter 28, as he unpacks this reality in verse 21. So I'm going to read it from Isaiah because he's directly quoting from the book of Isaiah. And this is what it says. For by people of strange lips and with a foreign tongue, the Lord will speak to his people. To whom he has said, this is rest, give rest to the weary, and this is repose. Yet they would not hear. Now let's refamiliarize ourselves with what Isaiah is doing. Isaiah is prophesying to the northern kingdom, specifically Samaria. And he's prophesying immediately before the Assyrian Empire comes to take them captive in 722 B.C. And what has happened? Isaiah has been going around and he's been warning everyone and telling everyone, hey, this is going to happen. This is going to happen. Get ready. Get ready. And the false prophets of Israel are actually making fun of him. They're mocking him. They're calling his words and his prophecies babble or baby talk. And if the people of Israel would not listen to the warnings of the prophets in their own language, Perhaps they would be persuaded by the foreign tongues of their oppressors. So just like foreign languages became a sign of judgment for the nation of Israel, it would also serve as a sign of judgment for those who had not yet believed. Therefore, Paul follows. Look at verse 22 back in 1 Corinthians 14. What does he say? Thus, tongues are a sign not for believers, but for unbelievers. Why prophecy is a sign not for unbelievers, but for believers. For the outsider, for the one who had not yet believed, who visited a corporate gathering, the gift of tongues was tangible evidence. Evidence that they could see that God was really doing something incredible, even miraculous in the establishment and the formation of his church. Now, this was at least the reality, whether the person who was seeing it believed or chose to accept it as it truly was. This was what God was doing. He was doing miraculous work among the people establishing the early churches throughout the world. And so on one hand, if if an interpreter was employed together with the gift of tongues, a person from the outside who was curious, 
could perhaps hear, maybe even see visible evidence that would convince them that God is at work in this community. However, if tongues was employed uh, in corporate settings without, and maybe even sometimes with an interpreter, because of the mysterious nature of the gift, there was also a chance that the person who had not yet believed would come to the conclusion that Paul reveals in verse 23. Take a look. If therefore the whole church comes together and all speak in tongues and outsiders or unbelievers enter, will they not say what? You are out of your minds. What is going on? Do you remember how this played itself out in the early church? You remember the book of Acts? When this first happened in the early church in the book of Acts, people are speaking in languages they had never formally learned and, and they're going around talking to other people. And what did, what did the people in public think had happened? They thought they were drunk, that they had drank too much. And Paul's kind of affirming that this is the reality here. Uh, if you do this, this is what their takeaway could be from your corporate gathering, that this is the kind of folks that you are. Either way, then, for those who are not yet in the faith, the gift of tongues becomes a sign of judgment, whether it's accepted as a miraculous and from God or rejected as babble or nonsense. It's judgment on them. So when everyone is together, if not tongues, what is the most fruitful gift that God has given us for the building up of the church? And Paul gives the answer at the beginning of verse 24. Take a look and see what he says. Just the first few words there. But if all do what? If all prophesy. If all prophesy. And as we say that, friends, I, I think we should be reminded of the possibility. Right? We, we understand this. There's not just the possibility. It's, it's the likelihood and probably not just the likelihood, it's the reality that God has worked on the minds and the hearts of those who have not yet believed before they even enter our public worship environments. Have you considered that? Maybe, maybe some of us have not considered that reality. That God is able to speak and work in the lives and the minds of those who do not yet know him. Again, Isaiah chapter 45, another heavy chapter of Isaiah. Paul's words are invigorated by the prophet in this part of his letter, especially chapter 45. It's all throughout this section of Paul's letter. Look at what Isaiah says, prophesying the word of the Lord. I am the Lord. There is no other. Beside me, there is no God. I equip you, though what? You do not know me. Wow. And so this is this is the reality of those who are curious, those who have not yet believed that God is inviting or drawing or bringing into our corporate gatherings. We take into consideration their needs and what they need to hear, because the reality is God is working before they even dawn the doorstep in their minds and in their hearts to prepare them for the truth that they're going to hear in our assembly. And watch how this can work. Again, Isaiah 45. If you get homework this week, go to Isaiah 45. Read 1 Corinthians 14. Read Isaiah 45. Beautiful, beautiful, beautiful.
beautiful crossovers all throughout both. But Isaiah 45, verse 14, thus says the Lord, when the proclamation of truth goes forth, the wealth of Egypt and the merchandise of Cush and the Sabians, men of stature, these are outsiders, friends, these are folks who have not yet believed, they shall come over to you and be yours. They shall follow you. They shall come over in chains and bow to you. They will plead with you saying, surely God is in you. Now watch this last line because it's going to come up again in, in Paul's text. And there is no God besides him. Surely God is with you, in you, and there is no God besides him. Almost all of Isaiah 45 invigorating Paul's imagination here as he writes to the church. And in the next few verses, in verses 24 and 25, Paul is going to uncover a framework regarding how God uses the proclamation of truth in our public settings to draw people to himself so that every knee will bow and every tongue shall confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. Look at verses 24 and 25. Of chapter 14. But if all prophesy. And an unbeliever or outsider enters. He is convicted by all. He is called to account by all. The secrets of his heart disclosed. And so falling on his face. He will worship God. And declare that God is really among you. Isaiah 45.14. Repeated in Paul's words here. And as we examined together last week, God uses the gift of prophecy to help us live peaceably and prepared in the world that he has planted us in. So this question begins to emerge then for the not yet believer, for the outsider who may come into our corporate spaces that does not yet know the Lord. What does peaceable and prepared living look like for them to start friends? If you're with us today, if you're here in this building or if you're with us online and you do not know the Lord, you, you're living in unbelief. At, to, to start the very beginning, I would invite you to come to a saving knowledge of Jesus by believing on the Lord Jesus Christ and being saved today. Leading towards an attitude of confession and repentance of your sin and adoption into the family of God. Friends, don't leave here today. Don't don't log off online today if you haven't made the Lord your personal savior, if you haven't come to know him, uh, if, if he hasn't freed you from the bondage of sin and death, he's able to do that. But what Paul is doing in verses 24 and 25 is he's providing us with a framework to see how God uses prophecy in our public settings to completely regenerate and transform the heart, that word spirit and mind of the one who is curious or the one who has not yet believed. Let's look at them together. There are seven patterns here that Paul identifies in verses 24 and 25. Entering, conviction, accountability, confession, disclosure, confession, humbling, worship and declaration. And we're going to go through them quickly this morning. But I think it's worth noting that Paul is not saying that these patterns are necessarily simultaneous, nor is he inferring that all seven of these happen every time someone who is not yet believed hears the truth. Uh, indeed, some of these 
habits or patterns may take years of the fruitful proclamation of truth and shepherding and discipleship in the truth for a person to realize. I also do not believe that any of these are specific only to the outsider or not yet believer. Friends, all of these are patterns that can and perhaps should be a regular part, regular habits of dynamic Christian community. So let's start with this word enter. Working through the gift of prophecy, God is forming Christian communities where an outsider or not yet believing person would be welcomed, received, nurtured, and loved in a way that would cause them to want to enter. Now this is a, this is a, a theme of St. Augustine's teachings. If you ever read any of Augustine's work, he leans heavily on Jesus' teaching in Luke chapter 14, verse 23, and he, he carries this concept in through his teachings, compel them to enter. Compel them to enter. But what are we inviting those who are curious or who have not yet believed into? And are we, as faith communities, truly prepared to receive those who have not yet believed? And have we truly taken into consideration their needs? Have we considered or explored the real complexities of the lives that they're inhabiting? Do we care enough to do so? And we've often, friends, talked about the hostility and the anxiety and the fear and the bitterness and the shame and the despair and the resentment that are making up certain compartments of the culture that we inhabit. But here, friends, we are to have a hope-filled reality that existing within all of this malaise in our culture, all of the fogginess and difficulty that's out there, there is a community that God is forming in the image and the example of Christ that's guided by His Spirit, that's motivated by love for the glory of God and the good of one another. Friends, that would compel me to enter. I want to see that community. I want to learn more about that group of people. And how might our faith community at CNBC continue to grow into this kind of fellowship? I think that's a good question for us to explore and invite dialogue around. Coming in the door, participating in this level of fellowship. Friends, for someone that does not know Jesus, for someone that's not been raised in church, which in the next generation is going to be the large majority of our communities. That's going to be it. They're not going to have been raised in church. Even getting to the doorstep or the entry point is going to be incredibly intimidating. And it's going to take a ton of relational work and effort on our part to build those bridges, to put those trellises up where growth can happen where relationships can be built, where we can invite people into true fellowship in the congregation, in the family of families, the congregation of God. Do our postures reveal that we're ready to help alleviate the tensions and anxieties, the social pressures that go along with being new or being an outsider to an established faith community? Are we ready for that? Entering fellowship is only the first step in these sevens that Paul reveals here. He looks at another way that God can work through the gift of prophecy, and that is conviction. 
Working through the gift of prophecy, God's forming Christian communities where an outsider or not yet believing person would experience conviction of sin. Friends, if prophecy helps one to live peaceably and prepared in the world that we inhabit, conviction reminds us that sin is still real and it's still a very disruptive force towards peaceable and prepared living. We will not live peaceably or prepared if we're inhabiting patterns and postures that are sinful or against God's desires. We all sin. Friends, we are simultaneously a community of saints and sinners. Conviction through the hearing of truth is not something that necessarily should provoke us to wallow in shame. Rather, it should promote attitudes and postures of repentance, a turning away from those things. We don't have it all together. And for the one who's not yet believing and curious about the faith, this can be a a breath of fresh air to know that there's a community that exists within their community that's willing to acknowledge, hey, come on, come be part of our community. We don't have it all together either, but we're learning. Jesus is showing us. He's teaching us from his word. Come learn with us. Come grow with us. We'll let Jesus help us figure it all out. What a breath of fresh air. Jesus died to free us from these ways of thinking that are so present and prevalent in our society today. He calls us towards repentance, a turning away from these sinful attitudes and behaviors and to embrace this abundant life that he offers. When he confronts somebody in the New Testament, when Jesus comes to someone in the New Testament and talks with them, confront is really a hard word because I don't really think that that's the posture that he takes. But he's talking with people who are caught in these patterns of lifestyles of sin. What does he say to them? Go and do what? Sin no more. Go and sin no more. What life-giving advice. It's amazingly life-giving. For both the believing and for the not yet believing. Go and sin no more. And when we do sin, when we get it wrong, we hear the truth through the proclamation of truth, through the gift of prophecy. We're convicted, we repent, we ask forgiveness, and we know Jesus says your sins are forgiven. Go and sin no more. And so following this conviction, there's an accounting or confession. You'll see that I put the word confession on two of these today. I couldn't figure out which one that they went with, but confession seems to be a part of both the next two. Working through the gift of prophecy, God's forming Christian communities where an outsider or not yet believing person would experience conviction leading towards confession and an accounting of sins. What a great way to live peaceably with one another, church, to recognize that we're all sinners, to be part of a confessional community where we confess our sins with one another and hold each other accountable for living motivated and compelled by Christ's love and by his example. Throughout the world, some of the faith communities that are shining the brightest are communities that are committed to open and visible postures of confession and repentance. There's accountability in these communities. Did anybody grow up in a church where they actually prayed a prayer of confession every week? Anybody in here remember praying a prayer of confession every week? Some? No? Wow, we're a few generations removed from that. Uh, I, it was in my faith community, we did a prayer of confession and a prayer of repentance every week. It was kind of written out and wrote, but it was in the bulletin so everybody could follow along and say it together. Over the years, we've kind of lost some of these habits and patterns. And unfortunately, I, 
I wonder if it was to our detriment. I wonder if it would maybe be good for us to draw some of these things back out and maybe breathe fresh and new life into them, to go back into these habits and patterns of confessing and repenting of our sins and making sure that together as a body we are turned and oriented and situated towards Christ in our patterns and our habits, following His example. A healthy re- uh, re-examination and restoration of some of these practices maybe perhaps would inject some life into our corporate gatherings even. So Paul follows this uh, accountability with this word disclosure. Working through the gift of prophecy, God forms Christian communities where an outsider and not yet believing person would experience conviction, compelling one towards confession and a disclosure of the secrets of the heart. What do we know about the heart, friends? What do we know about the heart from the Bible? The heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. Who can understand it? Well, guess what? God gives us the gift of prophecy. The gift of prophecy uh, working through God's word is cutting through joints and marrows. It's helping us understand and discern the heart and being convicted and confessing and revealing to others the deceitfulness and wickedness of our hearts is one true way that we would know that God is at work through the gift of prophecy in our faith communities. And this is another way that we know that the gift of prophecy is firmly tethered and entwined with the proclamation of God's word. Because look, you attach that, Jeremiah 17, with Hebrews chapter 4, and look at what God's word says that it's able to accomplish. For the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and of spirit, joints and of marrow, discerning the thoughts and intentions of the what? Of the heart. The heart. So prophecy then, the proclamation of God's word is aimed at both the mind and the heart. Paul is using Uh, The Old Testament, as he's writing here, we've already shared that he's used Isaiah 28 earlier in the text. And undertones from Isaiah are still informing Paul's thinking here. These postures and and habits and attitudes and patterns, they're hard. And many within the nation of Israel rejected them and brushed them aside. Remember Jesus' disciples. Jesus' own disciples in John 6, he's telling them what it's going to be like and what happens at the end of that teaching. Many of them do what? They leave. Friends, these are hard things. They're difficult things. In the church today, some leave when we're confronted with these attitudes and these patterns and these habits that are part of life-giving, life-forming communities. But it's amazing what Paul does here. Look at Isaiah chapter 28, verse 13. It'll be on the screen. And the word of the Lord will be with them, will be to them, precept upon precept, precept upon precept, line upon line, line upon line, here a little, there a little, that they may go and fall which way? Backward. That they may go and fall backward and be broken and snared and taken. But... For communities who embrace these patterns where peaceable and prepared living is promoted through the proclamation of truth and the habits and the attitude that are formed are life-giving and healthy and good for the community, both those who believe and those who who have not yet believed. Instead of falling backward and being snared and taken, 
What is the posture that we now see in 1 Corinthians 14? Which way are we falling now? Forward. Now we fall forward on our faces in worship. There's a humbling, friends. A humbling. And I don't know about you, but I look around our world today in our community. I know for myself. And again, I preach to myself every Sunday I'm up here. There's a humbling that needs to take place in our world today. A real humbling. And it'll come as God's word is proclaimed and his spirit works through the proclamation of his word. Working through the gift of prophecy. God's forming Christian communities where an outsider or not yet believing person would experience conviction, confession, a disclosure of the heart's secret. Leading one towards a posture of humility. Falling forward on my face is not just a posture of worship. It's also a posture of humility. I'm not in control. God, I need you. I need you. Isn't that beautiful? Paul changed the posture. Isaiah 28 of informing what he's writing here. But instead of falling backwards, now we're falling forwards. Humility. It's not a comfortable position. But it's a position that honors God and builds one another up. The true transformation that God has wrought through the exercise of the gift of prophecy really begins to crystallize when we're on our faces together in worship of him. One enters upright. Think about that. One comes in. One enters upright. But in the course of time within their community, as they're exposed to truth, they're humbled to the posture that's most effective for living peaceably and prepared in this world. Not, I have all the answers. I know it all. I got my act together. I don't worry about sin anymore. No, no, none of that. None of that. The posture's completely changed. Lord, I need you. How I need you. Every hour, I need you. Every minute of every day, Jesus, I need you. Guiding me, leading me, directing me, helping me navigate this world that you have placed me in. It's a posture from which worship flows freely as we visibly and within our spirits made less of ourselves so we can truly magnify Christ as the one who is greater. How about worship? God is working to form Christian communities where there's a disclosure of the heart's secret, a humbling that would motivate the worship of God. And so we begin to turn a corner in this cycle, these seven patterns, where the outsider has entered not yet believing, but now becoming fully convinced he is worshiping God. No longer an outsider or one who has not yet believed, now they are inhabiting and practicing the same postures of the other believers in fellowship. They're joining together not only in worship, but also in declaration and again, that's the final one. The worship of God and the declaration or public testimony that God is inhabiting our churches. Friends, God really is among us. Amen? Amen. He is among us. And that is the reality. The Holy Spirit indwells us. God is with us when we get together. He gets the glory. The Holy Spirit is at work. Jesus is inhabiting these spaces. He is our example. He's the one we want to go after and live our lives as. But we know to do that, we must take up our cross to follow him. Discipleship is not easy. At the end, the very last 
words of Paul in this section, uh, most likely informed by the prophet Zechariah in chapter 8, verse 23. Look at the connection in 1 Corinthians 14. Stay there and look at, look at the end. Look at verse 25 and then listen to these words from Zechariah. Thus says the Lord of hosts, In those days ten men from the nations of every tongue shall take hold of the robe of a Jew, saying, Let us go with you, for we have heard that God is with you. Such powerful truth. God is with us. He's among us. He's here That is why we gather. We gather because we know God is working through the proclamation and preaching of his word to build up our communities. We're not seeking to entertain, friends. That's not why we're here. By the way, if it was, we're doing a poor job of it. (laughs) We're not here to do that. That's not why God's called us into community. There's so much out there that's available to entertain us. That's not what this is about. This is about participating together in in habits that the Spirit is working through to magnify the Son and to reveal and glorify the Father. So we sing together. We pray together. We memorize and study Scripture together. We hear how God's working in our community, in our world together. We fellowship. We drink coffee and eat donuts together. We exercise our spiritual gifts together. We go to adult Bible fellowships and children's classes together together. So we sacrifice together, we serve together, and as we do that, friends, we grow together and build one another up together in love. And God is glorified because he's here among us at work in the midst of our blossoming community. So how might we live as disciples of Jesus and function together as his church in an overwhelmingly unbelieving world? Considering what we've read today, considering those God has drawn into our communities We proclaim his truth, celebrating as God works to motivate attitudes and behaviors of conviction, accountability, confession, humility, and worship, growing our corporate awareness that God really is among us. Dave's going to come and lead us in the final hymn as he comes. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for your word this morning. Thank you uh, that you are present with us, that you form us. You bring us together and you make us and uh, create us in the image of your son. Uh, Lord, it's hard. It's hard to live in this world. It's hard to follow the example of Jesus, his attitudes and words and patterns for living. It's not easy. There's so much that seeks to throw us off course. And yet, Father, we see today that it's the proclamation of truth, uh, the gift of prophecy and your word being taught that helps keep us on course And so we pray that the Spirit works through the preaching of your word today to help us keep on course through this week, that in our minds and in our behaviors, that we would inhabit postures and attitudes that are glorifying and honoring to you. And we give you the glory for what you'll do as you're working. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.